Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time we're going back to cover the summer of McMahon's Millions and the beginning of the Adamley era. It's SummerSlam 2008, and Q, I have no idea what got into WWE this summer, but this was a wild time. But before we get into that, let's talk about another wild time in wrestling, and that's this week right now. As we record this, it's Thursday evening. Um, We're one day removed from a great episode of AEW Dynamite. We are 24 hours from AEW presenting the first dance at the United Center, the rumored debut of CM Punk and AEW. We've got SummerSlam this weekend. We got all kinds of things going on all over the wrestling world. Kyush, how fired up are you right now? This is probably, and I'm trying not to use hyperbole because I know that I'm absurdly prone to it, but like this feels like one of the most exciting weekends of wrestling. Oh, shit. In a long time. You gotta the go back. The closest one I can ever remember is like that first NXT Brooklyn going into SummerSlam. Weekend. Yeah, that's it, a good like, one. But this feels way, way, way bigger than that. This yeah, could have what about when you had like Bret Hart back in WWE and TNA going to Mondays with Hogan and the um, Wrestle Kingdom like all on the same night? Or That's the, almost certainly the last the same time. Day, at least I always forget how the time difference works with Japan and Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah. But like it, that was probably the last night in wrestling in general that was as big as this weekend is about to be. But even then, this completely outstrips that. Just think about this realistically. This is the probably the best built to WWE show in five years. This is probably this might be the night that Becky Lynch comes back. Yeah. This might this might be the night where they actually get it together. And then you have on the other side, AEW was like lighting up the world with all of this shit that might happen. And CM Punk might be back in wrestling literally tomorrow night. Yeah, I, I I don't what after seven years gone he could become. I mean, and if, 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 let's be clear, if he doesn't, if he doesn't show up tomorrow night, AEW has massively, massively dropped the ball. Oh yeah, this might very well like hurt this would their be business. like that Royal Rumble that Brian didn't win if he didn't show up. Like, can you imagine? Like, they've gone so far as like TNT officials have responded to like the rumors yeah. that CM Punk was going to come. If if he's not coming, then Tony Khan has absolutely destroyed anyone's faith in his word going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, let's start at the top with AEW because it's what what I'm most excited about. So they just put on a great episode of Dynamite last night that was headlined by MJF beating Chris Jericho in the final labor of Jericho. Um, well, this was an excellent show from top to bottom. Sting looked amazing again. That man is clearly drinking from the fountain of youth. How fun is it that Sting, this old ass man, is now like come back to life by hanging out with like a 22 year old skateboarder? <laughs> I dude, I just for me seeing Sting wrestle on TNT again with Tony Schiavone on the call is just like everything I ever wanted with my life. It really is. There's something magical about it. Like again, when we watch AEW, Steve and I have like two very different experiences because yeah. he's reliving his childhood. This yeah. is WCW returned to him after all these years and all this time that we've spent talking about how much we wish it would come back. It got delivered to him. This is Sting on TNT with Tony Schiavone. It's amazing. For me, I'm just watching the version of TNA that I always wanted. Yeah. Like, this is a lot of the same stars, a lot of the same kind of ideas, except they're shredding it at all of them. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, had an amazing tag title match with 
the Young Bucks and Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus. An awesome, awesome match. I am so it's so fun to watch Jungle Boy become a star. I Jungle Boy is definitely becoming a star, and a lot of that is like having Christian in his corner helps him so much. And I feel like there's so many people on this show that when a lot of new eyes come in because of like your CM Punk's or your Daniel Bryan's yeah, are like, when people get a look at them, they're going to be like, Oh shit, that guy rules. Jungle like, boy, Darby Allen. There's a lot wow. of people who could become like star stars yeah. pretty much overnight. If you get enough mainstream eyes on this promotion, uh, Britt Baker's doing some amazing stuff. This Britsburg thing, like yeah. I've always wished that wrestlers were allowed to have like more affinity for their hometowns because yeah. there really aren't that many. There's like Charlotte for Ric Flair, Chicago for Punk. That's pretty much it, right? Yeah. It's just so smart. Having her come out in the Steelers colors with people waving the terrible towels is so cool. You can just, no matter what she's doing, that match with Red Velvet was not a main event match, except for the fact that Britt Baker was in Pittsburgh and it made yeah. it feel like a main event match. And it took us this long to mention that awesome match Christian and Kenny Omega had yes. on that debut. Like that, what a debut for Rampage. What a tremendous one hour of wrestling that was. I'm so happy just to have a one hour wrestling show yes. back in general. Because well, I, wish it was on, I wish it was on Saturday nights, but you know, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Saturday nights at six, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm so happy because it's the perfect length for a wrestling television show. Yeah. You have one long, great match. You have a couple segments, one shorter match, you're out, right? It's perfect. Like, you never have time to get bored. And that's how that show was. Like, I, when it ended, I was like, oh man, I kind of wanted to yeah. see more. That's not an experience I have much. No, it's days. a very rare feeling where Raw's three hours every week and the pay per views are five hours or whatever. Yeah. Even though, I, like, I'm genuinely enjoying Raw and SmackDown right now. I'm genuinely enjoying Dynamite. I don't want to slag those off. I'm just saying, I've never watched them and then been like, oh <laughs> man, I want an hour more of that. Even, even AEW overdoes it on the length of their pay per views. I find they're usually 30 minutes longer than they really need to be. And that's just realistic. I don't they always think there's like a very clear point at which wrestling starts to become repetitive. If you've just been watching it in a row, even if the matches are all like different kinds of matches, there's just a point at which you can only watch so much shit happen in a ring in a row. But it's it's usually right about three hours. Yeah. So, of course, the big news what the world is watching CM Punk um, rumored all but confirmed to be coming to AEW. I think the only question at this point is, do you start the show with him or do you end the show with him? And if it's what me, do you do with him? I end the show with him because I want to build viewers throughout the night. Yeah. I want people to be like sitting in their living rooms, texting their buddies like, oh, shit, is this where he comes out? I want everything I put on that show to be watched by people waiting for Punk. Because if you put him on first, people are going to tune right out as soon as he leaves. That makes sense. Anybody who wants to see Punk, I'm going to make him see Darby Allen. I'm going to make yeah. him see Jungle Boy. I'm going to make him see Miro. I'm going to make him see everything that else that I'm pushing to keep so I can hook them for the next week, even if they don't like what happened with Punk. Yeah. And again, for the WCW nerd and me, a huge show at the United Center just feels so cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was listening back to one of our old episodes, SummerSlam 94 which was one of the few WWE shows to ever be at the United Center. And we talked about like how cool it would be if someday AEW could run the United Center. Cause you know, at that point they'd run shows in Chicago, but they were always at, you know, whatever that C arena is at the Hoffman yeah. Estates. It's so funny to me because like I went to the first all in at that show 
And it seemed like such a bonkers achievement that they like yeah. filled that building. And it's like, man, maybe one day, someday down the line, they could like fill an even bigger building. And that would be wild. And we're already here. It, it's yeah. been three years and we're here. Three years now. later and they're going to have like 15,000 people at the United Center tomorrow. And if they debut Punk here and things go well, the next time they come, they could do more. Yeah, they might fill the place next time. Cause the United Center holds a ridiculous number of people. It's like 22 or 23,000. It's just fucking crazy. And I love, I, I will always love, that one of the reasons like a marriage between Punk and AEW is so perfect is because AEW has really made Chicago their city. Yeah. I like mean, all the way back to the original All In, what yeah. everybody was talking about is, is Punk going to show up? Like, he was literally at, like, the pro wrestling tee shop signing autographs because yeah. there were so many fans in town for the show. So, like, he literally could have walked to the arena if he felt like it. Um, so it just seems like a match made in heaven. Like, it literally, all of their big biggest shows happen at his, like, at his house. He could just yeah. walk there. <sighs> so, yeah, really exciting times for AEW. And we didn't even talk about the fact that Daniel Bryan is probably going to be coming in next. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. Like, Daniel Bryan's going to be coming in. Uh, Miro is absolutely burning the fucking yeah. house down with this. Barely talked about MJF and Jericho and how oh brilliant the labors of Jericho have been. Labors of Jericho, one of the best TV writing gimmicks yes. I've seen in years. So good. That awesome entrance last night with the crowd singing Judas acapella. Like, this is one of those things where, like, <clears throat> we have never eat, we have scoffed thousands of times at the idea of doing like a, a, a current events wrestling podcast because a it seemed like the most boring idea in the world because nothing fucking was happening week to week now it almost seems like we have to put like 30 minutes on the front of every show just to cover it because it's so exciting it's amazing yeah okay so on to wwe next and i guess this is uh five is too many we've got three current wrestling stories that's Yay. a throwback that i don't think very many people are gonna get Nobody listened to the Qush cast, but if you did, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Um, on to WWE. So uh, they've got SmackDown tomorrow night. Of course, the big stories. They've got SummerSlam on Saturday in Las Vegas. Huge show. We've got John Cena versus Roman Reigns in the main event. We've got Goldberg versus Bobby Lashley. We've got Bianca Belair versus Sasha Banks. Uh, we've got Edge versus Seth Rollins. A loaded card for the spectacular of the summer. One of the things uh, that we have done as part of the Lawcast is that we've kind of carefully cataloged over the years that SummerSlam is the shittiest wrestling show that's ever existed, and it's corrupt unlife that has continued on all these years. <laughs> it's one of the biggest offenses to God and man. This show is bigger than I, – I, I feel like it's bigger than any WrestleMania they've run in five years, honestly. It's the first stadium SummerSlam since Wembley 92, right? Unless yeah. I'm forgetting something. I believe yeah. so. All this those feels, years it was in uh, the Staples Center and then it was in Brooklyn forever. They've spent so much time, literally all of my life, trying to convince us that SummerSlam was like the WrestleMania of the summer. And it's never been true. Not one time, not ever. This time it's bigger than WrestleMania. This, this feels like a redo of WrestleMania. Like, hey, what if we did it again and got it right? Bam, here it is. Actually could have you know a full stadium. Like, every match on this show has been built to carefully and over the course of weeks and weeks in a way that I didn't know they still had the ability to do. Even stuff like Drew McIntyre versus Jinder Mahal is not a match I'm particularly excited to do, uh, but they've been building it for months. Yeah, they've done a genuinely pretty good job building that. Now, it, lo it seems like it's going to be a status quo show, at least on top, in the sense that 
I don't think they're changing either of the world titles. You would have to imagine Reigns and Lashley are both walking out as champions here. If Lashley loses, I genuinely don't know where Goldberg's going from there. No. Honestly, I don't really know what the plan there would be because there's nobody on Raw who's ready to like come up and challenge Goldberg. I'm about as big a Goldberg mark as there is, but I'm pretty much ready for him to be done at this point. I thought <laughs> that losing to Drew that definitively back at the Rumble really felt like the end. I mean, Goldberg represents a good win for Lashley to keep him like – so, so uh, solid as like a dominant champion. So I'm great with that. If Goldberg beats Lashley, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> yeah, that would be awful. Because this is um, finally the Lashley I always knew we could have. Uh, so I can believe they might compensate by changing some of the other titles. Like, uh, I don't know, Charlotte or Rhea winning the title from Nikki Ash would be reasonable. Um I don't know, Ray and Dominic picking up the tag belts. I don't know about Sasha and Bianca. That's kind of a hard call. Yeah, that could really go either way. Like, Bianca's title reign has been great, but it's rare that anyone, especially, like, in the women's division, has held the belt for longer than, like, the six months or whatever yeah, it's been. Usually it's WrestleMania to SummerSlam is about the upper limit. Um, probably time for Sheamus to drop the U.S. title, I'm feeling. I mean, he's held it for three months and defended it once, so it's probably about time somebody else took it. No um, idea what he's doing with that belt. I would bet strong money on RK Bro winning the tag belts as an odd couple. God, I hate Matt Riddle. I hate I him. Do t- I hate that this storyline is making me kind of like him, and it pisses me off. Because this idea of, like, the guy, the weirdo who comes, like, tries to be best friends with, like, the malicious killer, and the malicious killer slowly softens to him, gets me every single time. I do love Randy Orton's scummy facial hair, though. Yes. Randy Orton is killing it as this, as this, like, reluctant mentor role who, like, wants desperately to kill this guy. Yeah. I can't say enough about it. This is... This is about what Randy Orton should be doing at this point. He's got a reputation built over 20 years, and he doesn't really need to be in the main event. So now that they actually have main eventers, this is a good role for him. Uh, And then quickly on the rest of the world, um, (laughs) New Japan continues to be snake bit right after they bring back Will Ospreay and what was their best angle of the year. Uh, Shingo Takagi is uh, positive for COVID and has thrown the G1 into uh, chaos. Well, here's the problem is that there's still Japan is going through even worse COVID situations than we are right now. So, yeah. like, there's still a big problem with the travel between America and Japan. Like, at minimum, we're talking two weeks before you can do anything in either place. So, like, it's not like you can just jump back and forth in a day and be on either show. That's why you haven't seen that many. That's why the Forbidden Door to New Japan hasn't really been open for AEW, because it's difficult. And they just ran a pay-per-view in America called Resurgence, which was a great success. But a lot of the people like Osprey and a bunch like Suzuki and a bunch of those people are in Japan or in America now, and they won't be back. Like, they're still doing, like, TV there. We don't know who the fuck's going to be in the G1. It does not seem like they have enough people to run it, and it's super confusing. Yeah, I just, what a, I mean, we've talked about, what a snake bit year New Japan is having. Every time, it seems like they're getting the slightest bit of momentum, something terrible happens. They literally decide to build the whole company around Osprey. He gets a broken neck or whatever. Then they're like, well, we'll go back to Ibushi then. Nope, he's done. (laughs) And then here comes... Well, Takagi's the only one left. Let's do it with him. And he has COVID. Yeah. 
just an awful run they're having. And they've put so much pressure on Tanahashi again to cover, to like handle it, because he's the only one still there. This man is old. He's not ready to be wrestling 45 minute main events every single month anymore. Like, he's going to fucking break himself doing this. That's a lot to ask of a guy at his age. And it's it's succeeding because he's fucking awesome and the greatest wrestler who ever walked the face of the earth. But like you can't it's not going to last. It can't. Um, And then south of the border down in Triple A, they put on Triple Mania over the weekend and Kenny Omega beat Andrade in the main event to retain the Triple A mega title. Apparently the original book in. was for Andrade to win, but um, AEW pulled rank and said they didn't want Omega to lose here because he had just lost to Christian. The interesting thing about that, and I think the thing that a lot of people are missing, is that Andrade is not a AAA contracted talent. He is also just an AEW guy. I love how AAA just doesn't seem to care who they have under contract. I mean, I'm not sure that anybody does anymore because if AEW is going to be like, what, yeah. Yeah, if AEW is like, hey man, what's mine is yours, then who gives a shit, right? Yeah. Like, I, we're really entering. I mean, this has been a new and like fascinating era of wrestling. We're entering where all the non WWE companies, except Ring of Honor, are sharing talent. And what's really been proven, like what's genius about that, and while it's so stupid that it hadn't been done before, is that all this happens is like. Oh, yeah, your main event, like in Impact or in uh, AAA, is uh, you can have my biggest star. That's awesome. And then all anyone talks about is AEW. Like, no one's yeah. talking about AAA. Everyone's just talking about, like, AEW contracted talent, Kenny Omega. Yeah. Ooh. So, yeah, uh, a real quick overview of what's going on everywhere else. But, yeah, this is the most excited I've been for wrestling in you know quite a long time. But to go back in time to another time, I was really excited for wrestling. Uh, let's go back to the summer of 2008, which was a really weird time for WWE. I don't know what got into them, but it just feels like something lit a fire under Vince here. And suddenly they were really shaking things up. I'm almost not even sure what it is. Like a lot of the angles and stuff that have been going on, it's not like they just suddenly decided to do most of the matches on this card, with one notable exception. Um, it, it really had just been summer or SmackDown had been pretty good, Raw had been pretty good, and then all of a sudden it's just like Vince. Maybe Vince is just bored with the monotony of just a decently good show week in and week out, but nothing crazy. I don't know what it is. I don't remember that like ratings were tanking or anything at the time. It just seems like Vince just out of nowhere is like, no, we're changing this shit. It's getting boring. Well, the big thing was SmackDown was moving to my network TV. Um, so moving away from whatever the whatever you UPN was called by that point, but moving away from their longtime TV partner to whatever my network TV was. And that caused SmackDown to become a priority for the first time in a while. So as a result... Uh, They moved Triple H over to SmackDown in the draft, and that kind of set off a chain reaction of events that that resulted in some very interesting TV. But I think Raw ratings had been declining, which is what led them to do McMahon's Millions, where Vince was going to give away a million dollars per week on Raw. Per week. Per week. That's real. Even, like, this company... While it was big at the time, that was real money back then. Like now they're making more than a million dollars a week just from their TV rights fees. That was not the case back then. It's just crazy to me that like it's amazing 
that this they would even try to do this, but they've tried. We we literally just covered on another SummerSlam. This is not the yeah. first time they've tried to do contests like that, and they have been nothing but failures yeah. across the now, board. That one was very different. Let's remember because that was a lottery. That was yes. insured. Like no one won it, and if someone had won it. They had insurance on it, and the promotions company would have paid out the million dollars. Here, they're actually just giving away the money each week. Like, they're out a million dollars every week. Yeah, but this is almost not even about the money, because, like, if you thought you were going to get a decent return on the money, maybe that's fine. Maybe you can live with giving away a million dollars to pop a four rating or whatever. But there's no proof that doing this gets you anything. That, yeah. like, anybody wants to watch this, that it's been anything but death on television every time you've tried to do yeah. it. Ratings actually went down. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say because of this, but it's just like it wasn't a needle mover at all. Um, the segments were unwatchable. I, this was, I felt so embarrassed for Vince watching him try to MC this. It's just one of those things, too, where like I really feel like Vince was asking himself the question, like, okay, we really need to pop some th- ratings. Well, what do we have? Well, we have me, but, yeah. which has been his answer. Again and again and again and again. And in the past, it's worked off and on. But in this particular case, it, it was a disaster, like a horrible, horrible decision. Just the image of Vince in his old man glasses trying to dial the phone and not being able to do it and no one picking up the phone and then infamously Vince getting Rick rolled. Yeah, this is one of the greatest moments in television history. <laughs> So if you remember back, and you might need to be a slightly older person to remember what a ringback tone is, because I don't think they really exist anymore, but it used to be that if you called somebody on their phone, you could like buy a little ringtone that would ring instead of the normal ring, so they would be listening to your song while it was ringing and waiting for you to pick it up. That was a ringback tone. This is also, I believe, I don't think this was the summer of Rick Rolling, but I think it had been like a year since it had started. Yeah. Like It wasn't fresh, but it was still everyone was still doing it. And literally somebody chose uh, Rick Astley's never going to give you up is their ringback tone. Vince calls it and it immediately starts in the look of confusion on yeah. his face. This is a man who does, I, does not know what Rick rolling is, does not know what ringback tones are, does not know why a song is playing, is wondering in his mind, do I have to pay for the rights to this now? He probably just remembers grooving to that back in the club back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, he's literally ne- hasn't heard this song since he was doing cocaine off a stripper's <laughs> lap in a club in 1984. And is like, oh, man, what's this? Oh, man. So, I mean, over the course of it, they did make some improvements to it. Like, they started pre-calling the people to make sure they were home and telling them, like, hey, you know, we're going to be calling you later. Like, stay by the phone. Like, watch Raw. Now, the way they did it, there was a $250,000 prize, two $200,000 prizes, a $125,000 prize, a $98 prize, a $75,000 prize, a $51,998 prize, and a $2 prize. So some poor schmuck got called and won $2. Can you imagine being that person? Oh, it's just God. like, oh, man, I might win a million. Nope, you got $2. Fuck yeah. you. How mean-spirited is that? I mean, I guess it's like... I, I get, hope I hope <clears throat> they actually gave him like $10,000. Like at least something substantial. 
Or at least be like, here's two dollars and also tickets to a, a, yeah. a show. Yeah, WrestleMania like tickets. Like, well, but yeah, we'll like pay for a trip to WrestleMania. Like, give him. I hope that they actually did something because otherwise, that's just mean. But again, if if the idea is to create like good television, I get why they do something like that. But like again, this would take up not just a little bit of time on Raw. This was like a full like three segment part of Raw. Like it was not short. It had its own set. It was this whole thing. Yeah. Like this took up a ton of time. Like you saw, you just heard how many people I said, how many prizes I said they gave away. So I think they they would they would like double them up and do two at a time. But these were still multiple minutes. What like five six times? Like this was taking up a solid twenty plus minutes back when the show was only two hours long. And these segments are either being greeted by the live crowd with booze or silence because this is the most boring shit you could have possibly bought a ticket to see. It's like buying a ticket to see The Price Is Right, but you can't be a contestant on it. So after a few weeks, they had to get out of this. And I don't know if this was always the plan, but they had the set collapse on Vince. Uh, This was really intriguing because it set up the mystery of, like, who tried to kill Vince. And then there was no payoff. Like, it was just portrayed as it was an accident. And eventually he came back. It's actually pretty funny because this is yet another opportunity where Vince was like, I need to kill myself on television. Yes. I hate being on television. I need to die. Yeah. And I want to get away with this without giving away any more money, which I always assumed was part of it. It's just like, uh, we're not really going to keep this going forever. Let's kill me so that can be a good ending to this. So it doesn't just seem like we're cheaping out. Yeah, I don't. Had they fired Ken Kennedy yet? Because otherwise, he—I mean—he would have been the guy to be getting revenge on Vince for how he got screwed over with the whole Vince McMahon son thing. It, I don't know exactly when yeah, Kennedy I leaves. Remember. I think it was actually right around this time when he like dropped Orton on his head and got fired. It had to have been because he probably would have been on this show otherwise. Yeah. So yeah, I think I it think was so. at some point we should talk about that. That's that that show where they were supposed to do the show in Denver. And couldn't because of a playoff NBA playoff game, and instead had to do Raw somewhere else, and that whole mess was very entertaining. I think that was this summer. Yeah, that makes sense. And like we mentioned it, like kind of to the side a million times, but like the poor misfortunate life of Ken Kennedy and WWE, where like all Vince wanted was to make him the biggest star since the Attitude Era. Big blonde Irishman who even kind of looked like Vince. He literally, like, can you imagine, it literally would have been creating a new Triple H from scratch, really. It would have just been like the McMahon-Helmsley era over again with Ken Kennedy in that role. Like, creating somebody who's going to be like a six-segment-a-week player on your television going forward, and you just can't get there because misfortune keeps happening. I've never seen anything like it. Like, I've never... They've so often tried to push guys, and then it goes wrong, and then they just give up on them forever. I've never seen them try multiple times. That's how you know they really wanted it to happen. So this Shay, so the set collapsed on Vince the same night as the draft, and this was one of the bigger ones they had ever done. Um, Ray Mysterio got moved to Raw. Jeff Hardy got moved to SmackDown. CM Punk got drafted to Raw. Matt Hardy got drafted to ECW. Batista got drafted to Raw. Umaga got drafted to SmackDown. Kane got drafted to Raw. Ken Kennedy went to SmackDown. 
and Triple H went to SmackDown. So Kennedy was still around at this point. It's the it's the next year he does the thing where he gets fired. Um, but the biggest shakeup was probably the announced team, which we'll yes. talk about that in a second. But first, just thoughts on this draft. Like, this was a big deal. Like, Triple H going to SmackDown was a stunner. I never imagined that was going to happen. This is probably... Of all of the drafts they ever did, this may be the most successful one they ever did. Yeah, they because, made SmackDown here. Yeah, if the idea of the draft is to like shake both shows up in such a way that you create a bunch of fresh new matchups and fresh new ideas, this absolutely did that. The idea of having like Batista and Cena on the same show for like the first time yeah. ever in their careers was crazy. Uh, putting Triple H on SmackDown completely changes the trajectory of SmackDown. It it winds up making a gigantic megastar out of Jeff Hardy that I don't think would have happened without Triple H being there. Like, yeah. it creates a level of credibility they just didn't have. He gets to work with Edge and Undertaker, who he hadn't worked with in forever because they had been on the opposite shows. Yeah, it, it's it just winds up working so incredibly, incredibly well. Yeah. And, and like, both shows benefit hugely from it, and you can already see it. But again, the most discussed move was probably the announcer trade where Jim Ross and Michael Cole switched places. So Jim Ross gets moved to SmackDown. Michael Cole gets moved to Raw. Uh, They were ready to promote Cole to be the top announcer in the company and move JR into a secondary role, which I will defend. Like, it was time for that. And I think they've been vindicated in the fact that, like, JR didn't end up staying on with the company full time much longer after this. And Cole is still there in a lead role. The ironic thing about this is that, like, it, it was we've both we've said two different things already, which is that they're trying to make SmackDown the A show now. And also that, like, sending Jim Ross there is something he perceived as a slap in the face. And, like, I don't. At the time, so much was made of, oh, they're demoting Jim Ross down to SmackDown. And I'm not even sure in their minds that's really what they were doing, because I think they wanted a lot of Raw fans to follow yeah. him to SmackDown. Yeah, Which, I think they were trying to elevate SmackDown here, but he took it. He took this. It's not even the move so much as he was really angry. They didn't tell him it was coming. He yeah, was. He had to find out like everybody else does. Yeah. So he almost quit. Like, do you remember he like posted a blog post that night yes. where he was like, I'm thinking about quitting. Like, um, you know, and then like the next day he was like, OK, I called my wife and she talked me out of quitting. And the the other really bitterly ironic thing is that his I feel like Taz revitalizes him. Because we had seen this on pay-per-views before where they would like if they were going to mix the Raw team and the SmackDown team together, they did that a couple of times where they would just be like, oh, we'll just do Jim Ross and Taz and it'll represent both. And that was maybe the best commentary team they had access to at that time, because something about working with Taz made Jim Ross like different and made him like kind of shake himself out of like the going through the motions thing that he did with King every night. And I just really think. That if they had done that earlier, it could have been a lot better for Jim Ross in the long run. It was they were great here. Yeah. And then Taz moves on not too long after this, I think. And I feel like we end up with like Jay. I think Jr. moves to do color with like Todd Grisham. And I thought that was actually a pretty good team, too. Like yeah, we mentioned, I enjoy, I've always enjoyed Jr. in a color commentary role. Exactly. We've mentioned before that like Jr. the analyst is really good. That's basically what he does on AEW now. Like he'll do a little bit of the play by play stuff, but mostly that's Excalibur. And like while he's not amazing at it now because he's what he is now. 
I do think that that's one of maybe a role that he always wanted to play even more than the one that we know him from. Like he was very, very good at it. Yeah. He loves breaking down the matches. He loves like filling in the background of who the wrestlers are and what their personal stories are and why we should care about them. I think he always maybe resented a little bit that like there was never another announcer good enough to let him do that because he always had to be play by play. Maybe that's just putting words in his mouth, but it just always kind of seemed that way. So with Vince gone, the storyline was Raw descended into chaos. Uh, this was really fun. How like you know crazy stuff just kept happening. No one was in charge of the show. They had fans running into the ring. They had lights falling down backstage. Like JBL like took the sh- JBL like brought in private security guards and just like took the show over by martial law. That was very funny. That he was yeah. just like, yeah, I'm just going to spend my money and just become the warlord of Raw. Yeah, like he just literally has these guys, has his thugs like drag John Cena out of the arena so Cena can't get a title shot. Uh, and this should have gone. This should have gone on for longer. They pulled the plug on this too soon. They kind of do this two different times. Like this is the same thing that they do during that like summer of Punk with Triple yeah, H, right? Where like it just starts to deteriorate. And those are some of the most exciting Raws I've ever seen. Yeah. Because we had had such a fixed authority figure for so long that it really was like, man, what the fuck is this place like if no one's actively in charge of it? What the hell? Vince is dead. There's no GM. Who's running the show? Um, so they were in an inter- interesting situation here. Triple H was the WWE champion and he was drafted to SmackDown and Edge was the world heavyweight champion over on SmackDown. He wasn't drafted to Raw. So SmackDown has both the belts. Um, They're going into the Night of Champions show where you have Triple H against John Cena and Edge against Batista. So looking at those, you would assume one of those guys is going to, you know, they're going to flip one of the belts over to Raw. My thought was Batista was going to win the world title from Edge and bring it to Raw, and that would set up a thing with him and Cena for the belt. Not what they did. Instead, Triple H and Edge both retained the belts, so both the belts were still on SmackDown. Very strange. Very, very strange. So Edge came out on Raw the next night to talk shit. I think this was in, like, Oklahoma City and... He had to he had to rip on J- like I think they brought J- somehow they brought Jr. out to like say goodbye to Raw or something so Edge could talk shit to him. That sounds right. Then Batista showed up, beat up Edge, left him lane, and then CM Punk came out to cash in Money in the Bank and pinned Edge and won the title in a shocker. That was one of my favorite moments. That was awesome. Like literally, and just like the look of stunned, like on Batista's face as CM Punk runs past him was fucking and you got to remember despite the fact that CM Punk won two of these damn things like at this point CM Punk is firmly a mid-carder like they're treating we had genuinely thought that despite the fact that he won money in the bank that like there was a realistic chance he was just going to be like released in a year because Vince didn't seem to give a shit about him (laughs) now and now he's the world champion on Raw now we're going to talk a little bit now, we're going to talk more about how that reign goes because it's not great, but but like the idea of him winning the world title at this chaotic time is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. There's a show with John Cena and Batista on it, and CM Punk is the champion. Yeah, 
And he retained the title against Batista in a pay-per-view match. I think it was by, like, DQ or some shit. But yeah. still, he doesn't beat... He really barely gets a win this entire... Other than, He only gets to beat JBL in this title reign. And literally, the entire crux of his entire title reign is just, well, actually, he sucks, and he's a yeah. mid-carder, but boy, he's just on quite a run right now. And they, they mention that a hundred times a match. It's... What they do, anytime they put the belt, like him or Rey Mysterio, anytime Vince is reluctant to put the belt on somebody, he just buries them once they get the belt. Like, he's like, oh, I'll show you. I have to show you why this won't work. It's just amazing to me that, like, Vince so clearly is feeding lines to the announcers. Like, yeah, he won even though he's no good. And it's a miracle that he beat JBL, even though everybody beats JBL. So... To try to bring order to Raw, Mike Adamley was appointed the Raw general manager. My God. Steve, who was Mike Adamley? Okay. Mike Adamley was a great football player. He was an All-American fullback at Northwestern, uh, and he played in the NFL for the Kansas City Chiefs for a long time. Great football player. And then he was a broadcaster for many years, did college football, did the NFL. Pretty good broadcaster, as I remember. And uh, he was one of the uh, interviewers on American Gladiator. I think he may have been the host of American Gladiators. Yeah, I think he was the host, yeah. Good professional broadcaster. Uh, Not, to my knowledge, a wrestling fan. And never worked in wrestling before they hired him. The other thing thing is, uh, he, he played at Northwestern. He played football, like, back in the 60s. So he was old and... Uh, got hit in the head a lot. Like, I think, if I remember right, he's been suffering from CTE in his later years here. But he was already, like, in his 60s at this point when they hired him. He just looked a lot younger than that. And it's one of those things where, like, he was known... This was during an era where they're trying to find replacements for JR. And, like, they're not saying that, but... And I'm sure that contributes to JR's kind of angst in general during this period. Like, this is where they, like, take a stab at Mike Goldberg. This is where they're, like, casting around looking for, like... A more they brought rep- in Joey Styles for a little while. Yeah, they're, like, looking for a more reputable face of the company to be, like, the voice, right? They want somebody to come in who, like, looks professional. They're still trying this now. Like, they, they literally are still going through the same process. Adnan Burke, may he rest in peace. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they bring in Mike Adamley, and, like, he's decent at hosting things. The problem is he doesn't know jack shit <laughs> about pro wrestling. Yeah, we know all the Jeff Harvey and all the other screw-ups, like, yeah, so they bring him in, and he's the host of their shows, and he's terrible at it. And he botches all his lines. And then they make him the commentator on ECW, and he's terrible. Like, he's even worse at that, because he has no product knowledge, and he's not good at speaking off the cuff. And it's, like, not at all his fault. Like, again, we kind of mentioned this when we were talking about the new commentators during our State of Wrestling thing, is that, like, you got to give these guys time to get situated. Like you have to learn if, even if you're a week to week raw SmackDown viewer, I don't I like encyclopedically know the knowledge of like everyone's backstories all of the time in a way that I could communicate them to people during the middle of the show. And these people don't even watch the shows. They're not even wrestling fans. Like they just have to come up with this shit. And the alternative is you just literally robotic, like squawk back everything Vince says in your ear. That's not great either. So, like, yeah. you can't just throw people out there and expect them to succeed. 
So they had signed him to a pretty decent-sized contract. So I think the GM thing was just an attempt to get something out of him. And this doesn't end up working out either. And they end up you know, letting him go not too long after this. But like, there's one thing I like that they do with him as an authority figure, which is that they realize that his gim- the gimmick is basically that he's a fuck-up failure. And that's just yeah. basically the character they give yes. him. Like it's he's just an like, incompetent GM who makes terrible decisions. Yeah, he keeps trying to come up with like unique matches, but they're all weird as shit. <laughs> the scramble matches. We've got to do that. On yes, the scrambles. Um, so uh, Adam Lee's first move was to announce John Cena versus Batista at SummerSlam. So basically they're going to do what would have not only been a WrestleMania main event, but a big one. At SummerSlam with almost no build and no heat on it. I am genuinely furious. Again, as I've said many times before, I do not look at what matches are on the shows before we actually watch the shows. I like being surprised. Even though I've seen this show many times before, like I didn't just remember what all was on it. When I saw Batista versus John Cena was on this fucking show. Can you imagine how how stupid this build must be that we don't always talk about or at least remember that like the first meeting between the two biggest stars of this era is on this show. Yeah. Uh, they just did the, they did the dumb super cliche shit where they won the tag titles together. Of course they did. It was just, that's like, that was in this time period, like their go-to like, okay, we got two baby faces and we don't really know what to do with them. Let's just have them win the belts together and then they can break up. And then one of them will accidentally punch the other and we'll do a pull apart. Like it's not necessary. It's just bad booking. And then, and this is the story of John Cena's career. They take this match that with the proper build could have been absolutely enormous. And then they're like, well, shit, we got nothing for this show. We better throw it on the show. John, you have one month to cut good enough promos to make people feel like there's been this big overarching story from your whole careers leading up to this match. Because the promo video before this is amazing. Cena cuts a great promo. This promo that's like, I've always been watching you. You were always ahead of me, and I hated it. And now I need to know if I'm better. Like, that's a great promo. Holy shit. Like, that could have been the the crux of an amazing WrestleMania program. It's such a great natural story where it's just like these two had parallel rises. Like, they debuted at the same time. They became stars at the same time. They won their world titles on the same night. Like, it's the most natural story. One has been the top guy on Raw and the other has been the top guy on SmackDown and never shall their paths cross until now. And now they're going to find out who the biggest star of this generation is. And, like, this idea that, like, no matter how successful John Cena's been, and he has been, Batista's always seemed a little bit ahead, at least in the company's eyes. Like, he he was the main event of that first WrestleMania. When it was John Cena's turn to main event, Batista stole the show from him, and that's all they talked about was his match with Taker. Like, he's a little bit older. He's been a, he's beaten a little bit better people. And, like, the line in the promo that was, like, Cena being like, I've overcome and proven everything, but I haven't overcome you yet. Yeah. But from Batista's perspective, you know, John Cena is the face of this company. John Cena has been the top guy on Raw while Batista's had to carry SmackDown. You know, Batista has been the world heavyweight champion, but never the WWE champion. No matter what Batista's and Batista's been hurt all of these yeah. times while Cena's been there the whole time. Sitting at home watching John Cena become a bigger and bigger star every week. Now, Batista just got the Marine. Or no, Cena just got the Marine, whereas Batista's just... 
he wants to break into Hollywood, but he has no chance to. Yeah. <laughs> Guy will never make it in the movies. That's the funniest part, is that Batista winds up being a much bigger movie star than John, yeah, John Cena. Yeah, John Cena's gaining ground on him now. Yes. But, like, who fucking would have guessed that five years from this, this point we're at right here at this show, yeah. Batista's a way bigger household name. Uh, so the rest of the card, we've got CM Punk defending the World Heavyweight title against JBL, Triple H defending the WWE title against the Great Khali, and The Undertaker versus Edge in a Hell in a Cell match to blow off that long-running feud. That came about because Vicky Guerrero caught Edge cheating on her with Alicia Fox, who was their wedding planner. This is often forgotten. Because this was a period of SmackDown that very few people were watching. But the entire storyline between Edge and Vicky Guerrero is one of the greatest they've ever done. They take this idea that Edge latches onto Vicky because she's in control of SmackDown. And he manipulates her and develops this entire stable. And anybody who comes in his way, and this is primarily The Undertaker, he uses her as a tool to get rid of so that he can keep the belt. Because he's obsessed with the belt. That's what he really loves. And, like, first they ban the Hell's Gate, and Taker can't use that, so he can't beat Edge without the Hell's Gate. And then he uses the Hell's Gate, and he gets suspended. And so Edge is one. He's going to marry Vicky. He's, like, the Undertaker's dead and gone and is never coming back. But he just can't keep it in his pants. No, because he's Edge, and he's a scumbag, and he doesn't really love Vicky. And if he had just not fucked Alicia Fox, he would have been fine. He would have had the world. But boy, he gets caught on video, Vicky sees it, and Vicky dooms him to death. Because <laughs> this feels like Edge is one of the first people who had really gotten to take her since the dead man came back. Like, he had said sort of like an even thing with Batista, but, like, Edge really came out on top of their feud until this point. Like, yeah. getting him, like, completely banished from hey, the world. He'd gotten him fired after he beat him in that TLC match. And it's been um, like a month of no Undertaker. Like, that's a lot of restraint. Yeah. He's banished forever. And yeah, they managed to keep him away for like six weeks. Um, Which, that's incredible for WWE. So Vicky rehired Undertaker, booked him against Edge in a Hell in a Cell match as punishment. And then they did a great angle so, where Edge asked Mick Foley for help. He you know, talked about how The Undertaker destroyed Mick Foley in that Hell in a Cell match, you know, brutalized his body. Mick was never the same again. So he asked Foley to help him beat Undertaker in the Hell in a Cell match. Foley, you know, in his Mick Foley fashion, does a great promo on Edge where he tells him he needs to rediscover the man he used to be, the one who beat Mick Foley in a hardcore match at WrestleMania, put Foley through a flaming table. That's the man, that's the Edge he needs to be if he's going to beat The Undertaker in Hell in a Cell. And Edge just goes, I understand, and proceeds to demolish Foley. And for, like, the next two weeks, he, like, murders everyone. Yeah. All of La Familia, everyone is in the ring during matches. He's just a killer. In a way that Edge has rarely been before. This is always one of those things with that character that I've really loved. Is that, like, Edge is, like, obviously mostly a chicken shit heel. But what makes him a credible main eventer in ways that chicken shit heels normally can't be is he has this next level he can go to where he's, like, psychotic. And that's what really puts him over the top. 
Oh, yeah. So I, this was the summer the Dark Knight came out, and it really felt like they were trying to make Edge the Joker to Undertaker's Batman here. Oh, yeah, big time. Big uh, Very time. much. They were. This is the era where every villain had to be the Dark Knight Joker. Of course. Um, but, yeah, so that is a big main event for this show. And also on this show, we don't get Shawn Michaels versus Chris Jericho. Instead, they're teasing that Shawn Michaels is going to make a major announcement about the future of his career. And we'll get into the story with that a little later. But to get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, August 17th, 2008. We're at the Conseco Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Not what I think of when I think of SummerSlam. Definitely not. I mean, it's a pretty good venue and the crowd's hot all night, so that makes sense. But yeah. this is one of those things where, like, this is a huge, this is a huge, huge show. Maybe they didn't think it was going to be as big or hotly promoted as they planned it to be, because they probably would have put it somewhere better than this a year before when they booked it. Now, my thing with SummerSlam is I really feel like they should run SummerSlam in stadiums in cities that aren't going to get WrestleMania. Like, agreed. Yeah, you know, Chicago, Charlotte. You know, places that are big and good wrestling markets, you know, Minneapolis, places that are good wrestling markets, but are not, you know, going to get WrestleMania. Well, it's my biggest thing is that they show for them. I've always just thought you have to put WrestleMania somewhere in the South because it's in April and the yeah, weather, weather can be shit. We'll put then put SummerSlam in the North. Yeah. Make it the WrestleMania of like, that's why it in Brooklyn was such a great idea. I honestly wouldn't have hated it if they had just always done it in Brooklyn forever from yeah. then on, because it just felt like that was the perfect place and the perfect time to do that show. But also, again, yeah, Chicago is a great example. I don't want to go to a show in Soldier Field in April. You couldn't God. fucking make me. It'd be 10 degrees. Like negative 50 with wind chill, man. No, fuck you. But yeah, Minneapolis, Detroit. Like, these are the places you want to go. Yeah. Uh, they're sold out uh, like 15,000. They announced 15,997. I I don't know if they actually announced that number. I don't know why they wouldn't have rounded that up over 16,000. Um, but about 13,000 paid for an $800,000 gate. You know, strong gate number. But, you know, at this point, SummerSlam was money. Um, the buy rate, they do 477,000 buys. That's down quite a bit from... 537,000 the previous year for Cena versus Orton. I mean, as good a card as they put together here, and they can't outdraw the previous year, which I don't remember being a very strong card. No, not at all. Yeah. So, I mean, this is where they're just seeing a a general decline in their pay-per-view business at this point. People are just not willing to pay the money for the shows. I mean, that's not surprising at all. Like, I certainly wouldn't have been shit. (laughs) And on commentary, we've got the Raw team of Michael Cole and Jerry Lawler, the SmackDown team of Jim Ross and Taz, and the ECW team of Todd Grisham and Matt Stryker. And we're going to get to this, but we've mentioned before that, like, oh, man, it sucks (laughs) that they had to drive all this way just for their one match they get to call. That is so much more egregious here than it's ever been before. (laughs) Maybe the worst example ever here. Holy shit. Uh, the opening promo is, you know, a movie trailer parody. It's one of those, in a world, it's all about the Hell in a Cell match. But this is a pretty good video. This is better than the stupid, like, Pirates of the Caribbean parody they did for WrestleMania the last couple years. This is the two consecutive times, the same <laughs> fucking video. 
They just watched that video four times. Jesus Christ. Oh, no, this one was fine. Um, I always, I never hated the idea that they were trying to portray it as like this big blockbuster, especially now that like Cena's been in the Marine and like Batista's trying to get into Hollywood. That makes sense as a way to push this show, right? This was a good set with like the movie. Like it looked yeah. like the outside of a movie theater. I thought that was cool. It felt like the sequel to WrestleMania 21 in a positive way. I liked yeah. it. Uh, opening match, we've got Jeff Hardy versus MVP. Um, I have no memory of what this feud was about, but MVP has been costing Jeff matches in recent weeks. Does he hate Jeff because he hated Matt Hardy? I guess that would make sense. I guess it does make sense, but what I really think it is is that this was during the time where they just always had six people in the Intercontinental Division constantly feuding with each other, and one of them was always MVP, and one of them was always Jeff Hardy, and it was just like, like a, a, just a constant game of going around to the next guy. Shelton Benjamin's involved in this too. Matt Hardy gets involved in this too. Fine opening match. You know, it's exactly the match you'd expect these guys to have. MVP, you know, works on Jeff's back. Jeff makes a great comeback. But as he goes to the top, Shelton Benjamin shows up. Hardy does a crossbody out to the floor onto Benjamin. He goes for a swanton on MVP, but MVP rolls out of the way and then hits the drive-by kick to get the pin. It's actually more of a shining wizard, I feel like. Yeah, it, it's literally the setup of a shining wizard. It's that he kicks him in the face instead of hitting him with the inside of his knee. It's the same yeah. general idea. Um, that is such a better finisher for MVP than the fucking playmaker is. Holy shit. Uh, the overdrive is the worst finisher ever in wrestling. Yeah, this is. I, I watched this match, and I remember thinking, like, Jeff Hardy is right about to become a megastar. Like they're yes. right about to start the push that will result in him finally reaching the world title, yeah. which is incredible. That's one of the best, one of the le- less thought about, but best lines of booking in recent WWE history. The way they give him all those matches with Triple H where it keeps all, keeps coming within like an inch of beating him and Triple H outsmarts him every time. And Triple H is just like, you will never beat me because as good as you are, you are not the game. And then he finally beats him to win the belt. It, it's just amazing. I wish it hadn't been in a triple threat when he yeah. finally did it, but it almost doesn't matter. Like It would have been better if it was a singles match. That is, and that was one of the very first times that Triple H really went out of his way to, like, put yeah. somebody over. And that's really the beginning of, like, the, that period of Triple H's career where it's like, oh, time to make new stars. And he makes all the new stars. Like, but he does such an incredible job. But which is funny because he's about to get the mega push. MVP is the star of this match. Yeah. Why the fuck does he not get anywhere near the main event? At, he looks like a fucking superstar. There was just something about him. They were not willing. It was maybe he was too outspoken about his views on racial issues. Maybe it was his criminal history, but they were just never willing to go with him, even though, yeah, he is money. I mean, at this point, he's been around about two years and it's becoming clear the main event push is just not going to happen with him. They're just not going to get him there. And look, I'm not saying that MVP was always like the best in the ring or like that he killed it in every opportunity they ever got. I'm not going to say that. And I'm also not going to bring up WWE's long and storied history of completely fucking over any black person who was too black for their tastes, because that just speaks for itself. All I'm saying is that like even here, when it feels like he shouldn't have any more momentum that he's already been squandered, it really feels like a one hot angle could have gotten him there because he yeah. just feels like a star. 
then we go backstage where Maria interviews Santino and Beth Phoenix. Uh, Santino mentions that he used to date Maria. She asks about his unibrow and then Beth glowers at Maria Maria as they head to the ring. I find Glamorella very entertaining. Is this the two most attractive women that a man that looks like Santino has ever even kayfabe dated? Yeah, to date the ugliest dude. That was the heat, though. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, Glamorella was amazing. Like, this... Santino Morella, maybe more than anybody else during this era, turned chicken shit into chicken salad so dramatically. They literally make him a joke character. A guy who could never win a match credibly by himself. And he just rides that for the next decade. And he has huge success. Uh, Next up, we've got a tag team match for both the Intercontinental title and the women's title. We've got the two champions... Kofi Kingston and Mickey James against Beth Phoenix and Santino. It's one fall to a finish. Both the titles are on the line. Um, Mickey is the women's champion. Kofi is the intercontinental champion. He debuted on ECW at the beginning of the year. He got drafted to raw in June and he upset Chris Jericho to win the intercontinental title at night of champions after Shawn Michaels interfered. Seems pretty clear they got big plans for Kofi at this point. It's actually amazing how fast he rises up. Like, and then it takes him forever to get over the hump. Yeah, that's the amazing thing, is that Kofi Kingston, like, when he comes in, he's got a gimmick that doesn't seem like one they'd normally push, and he's definitely got a body type that I can't imagine Vince McMahon ever looked at and was just like, oh, yeah, that guy's going to rest- main him into WrestleMania for me. And yet they push him consistently and persistently for the next decade but he never rises above a certain point. He never even gets close to rising above that point. No, we've never really gotten to cover that Orton feud, which is, I feel like, where they lost faith in him. Yeah. We pushed him too too far too soon. And part of that was indeed him. And maybe that's just because they're leaning into this, like, new... Like, they're looking for new guys. And, like, they throw him and Punk into the fire well before they should. Well before they're ready. And then they end up teaming together, don't they? Yeah, because they're, like, the two guys we pushed, and, well, they failed, so fuck it. Throw them in a tag team. Yeah. But, like, here, it it is pretty wild. It's wild to see the fully Jamaican Kofi Kingston, which the company has just conveniently chosen to forget over the years. Which is, like, one of those weird racist things where it's, like, Oh, yeah, we got this guy from Ghana. Yeah, he's from Jamaica yeah. now. <laughs> Make him a Jamaican. Jesus Christ. Um, so the story here is really like Santino is the weak link in the team. He gets beaten up by both Kofi and Mickey. But then uh, Beth tags in and just demolishes Mickey and beats her. And Beth and Santino win the belts. I The most exciting thing about this match for me, because it's short, but it's fun, this is a pure intergender match. Yeah. The men fight the women. Mickey hits like Santino with his tornado DDT with some fucking stank on it, yeah. and it rules. And then, then they just don't do it again. Why? Why did they just randomly do it here and then never again? Well, this is where they're moving to PG. Um, this is a couple months after at the. It was like a month after the Great American Bash, which is where Sean did that horrible blade job in the match with Jericho and bled way too much. Yeah. And I think it turned out one of the executives from Mattel was like sitting in the front row with his kids and was like 
furious at what he witnessed. And WWE almost lost their contract with Mattel, which is one of their big corporate partners. That's a big source of revenue for the company. And on top, I mean, they had been moving, I think, in a more family-friendly direction for yeah. a while at this point. Like, they kind of needed to after really all the heat they got from the Benoit and Guerrero deaths. I think they just had to try to go with a more kind of respectable image. It's just, it's funny to me. I understand academically why the idea of men fighting women in any capacity just doesn't feel PG to this company and to any other people. It's dumb as shit because that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Beth Phoenix beating up Kofi Kingston, who she's bigger than. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not what this and is. Santino getting his ass kicked by Mickey, which is hilarious. Yeah, Santino's a fucking joke character. Anyone in this company could roll him. Hornswoggle could roll him. That's not what we're talking about. But for whatever reason, that stigma persists. It's 2021. It still persists. They flirted with it briefly for a second with Nia Jax, who's bigger than the vast majority of their yes. roster. And maybe the men wouldn't get her. Maybe she couldn't hurt the men when she punched them like she does so many of her women opponents. Yeah, maybe, yeah maybe she wouldn't like she trying wouldn't to drop every single one of them doing like yeah. power bombs and shit anyway. Um, they recap the Shawn Michaels, Chris Jericho issue. So this has been going since about WrestleMania. At WrestleMania, Sean beat Ric Flair to retire him. Uh, Hollywood Dave Batista then came for revenge against him, and something we both love, like yes. stubbly leather wearing Batista, like on the warpath to kill Shawn Michaels for retiring his mentor, is awesome. There's a lot of elements to this feud that are amazing. That's the first one that really stands out. It's like Batista coming out and being like, Ric Flair was my mentor. Everyone knows that. All I'm here to do is beat your fucking ass for revenge. Yeah. And John Michaels like tries to dance around it and everything. And then eventually Batista just gets his revenge and walks off into the distance like I yeah, did it, what I came to do. Jericho just inserts himself into this and they end up going with Jericho. Sean we'll the feud instead, which this ends up being like one of the best feuds in company history. But I, there was something more dynamic to me about Batista in this role. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just the idea that Batista, like, Batista's character has always been very fascinating to me. Because it's always very clear what his motivations are in a way that wrestlers usually aren't. You can track his decisions from storyline to storyline, and they make complete fucking sense. Cares about friendship. He, he cares about friendship until his friends fuck him, and if that happens, he murders them. It's that simple. Like, he very much cares about loyalty. He's the only one who stayed loyal in Evolution right to the very end. He's He was loyal to Ric Flair, and then he didn't hate Shawn Michaels. He just needed to punish him for what he did. Yeah. So I just I love it. Jericho just inserted himself into the feud. Like, he refereed the Batista-Shawn match at Backlash. But Shawn won that after he faked a knee injury and caught Batista with sweet chin music. Yeah. Um, then, that's, the, that's the beauty of this part of the Jericho part of it is that he's just a baby face who got put in as the referee, yeah. but he takes it so personally that Sean lies. Yeah. Sean lied to him. And that's just like the last straw for him that he can't stand this. He ends up slamming Sean's face through a TV screen, the obscenely expensive Jeritron 5000. And this is where he begins, like, you know, the suit wearing, slow talking Chris Jericho. Um, this is, you know, I think before Le Champion, my favorite Chris Jericho. 
what makes it so special to me is that like this is a very well thought out heel turn because it takes like four months for him to fully completely turn and every step along the way like it's made clear that chris jericho doesn't want to turn heel like he's not trying to be a bad guy he's just furious that like sean is getting cheered for being this dickhead that he's always been like this this one that he himself used to cheer sean for being and he's trying to show people that no sean michaels is a dick please stop cheering him cheer me and he just makes him go further and further and further and he so clearly regrets every new step that he takes like when he throws his face through the chair chomp 3000 or whatever, there's this great shot of him where he just looks like he has such clear regret that he's done that, but he took that step. So fuck it. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah, and we're going to get another one of those he tonight. Can't ad- he can't admit when he makes a mistake. Yeah. Like it's gone too far, but he's just got to ride it out. And then tonight, oh, we're going to get to tonight. Um, so like we said, a great American bash, like, Jericho targeted the eye. Sean did a terrible blade job. The referee stopped the match because Sean was bleeding so much. And then Sean said that he was going to see his doctor and he would announce his um, plans you know, on this show. He said he had been, you know, defying doctor's orders his whole career. But if there was a risk to his sight, he would have to retire. So a somber Sean Michaels comes out here with his wife, Rebecca. He says... His doctors have advised him to retire due to the injuries to his eye and his knees and his back. He looks back on his career, talking about all the things he's done for good and for bad. He was the showstopper. He was the main event. He was the icon. He was Mr. WrestleMania. But he also screwed Bret Hart. He formed DX. He innovated the ladder match. He lost his smile. He retired Ric Flair. And he says he's looking forward to being a full-time husband and father. This is a great promo. This is it, it, he's got a very difficult thing here, which is trying to convince the people in attendance that this is real when it obviously feels like a story. And he does an amazing job. Him bringing up the little touches of his career, like these are the little regrets that I've had. These are the moments people remember me by bringing up losing a smile, which is so wild. I never thought yeah. I'd hear him like actually bring that up on television. Like he looks like a man who's having to abruptly deal with retiring yeah. the, the corollaries between this and like the edge and Daniel Bryan actual retirements are very close. It feels like one of those. Yeah, this is, he sells the hell out of this by the end. You like, you absolutely do buy that. He's actually retiring here. Yeah. And then Chris Jericho interrupts. Um, Jericho comes out in his suit with a scowl. He says that Sean needs to admit that he's retiring because of Jericho. He's not just going to let him walk away without admitting it. Sean says when he gets home, he'll look his wife and kids in the eye and tell him he's retiring because of a vile, selfish, worthless human being. And he says that Jericho can tell his wife and his kids that he'll never be Sean Michaels. And this is the genius of this, is that Jericho is also going through kind of like the same problems that Michaels is, is that he's having to deal with the fact that this happened so abruptly. He's not going to get closure on this issue. And that's why he's here agitating. And that's why it makes him so furious, because a big crux to all of the Jericho-Michaels feuds is that Jericho did want to be Shawn Michaels so badly. Yes. And like... That's why he's acting out and wearing these suits and talking so differently is now he's trying to pretend that he didn't always want that. 
Yeah. But he does. <laughs> he has to pretend he's a different and he's on his own man and he's better than Shawn Michaels. But deep down, he knows he's not. And that one thing that you'll never be Shawn Michaels gets in him so much that he's got to take a swing at old retired Shawn. Yeah. Shawn goes to walk away. Jericho pulls him back and swings at him. Shawn ducks and Jericho punches Rebecca in the face instead. And by all accounts, and you can tell watching it, he hit her for real. Now, whether or not he was <laughs> are we supposed into cons- to hit her Are we getting into real? conspiracy time? <laughs> okay, let's be clear. There are two schools of thought. Either A, everyone knew he was going to hit her in the face for real. Everyone was cool. Rebecca was prepared. I can't believe that's true. Yeah, me neither. I can't, I can't believe that Shawn Michaels told Chris Jericho punch my wife in the face. I can't believe that like everyone backstage was like, oh yeah, yeah, live round a, a civilian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead and do that. Nail her right in the face, bust her lip open. B, Jericho did it whether accidentally. Okay, so there were inst- his instincts to punch women just kicked in. Yeah, that's to say. B, Jericho's just like, oh, I get to punch a woman, and he punches her. That maybe not that one. C, Jericho just accidentally hits her with a live round because she's out of position or he is or whatever. And then there's D, that Curse Jericho and Shawn Michaels knew, but nobody <laughs> else knew. Oh, you really think <laughs> Shawn was like, hey, nail her in the face? I would make. I don't know why, but that is absolutely the one that I subscribe to. The one where Sean, the version of Sean that was part of the Montreal Screwjob that's just like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this shit. We just don't need to let anybody know we were in on it. You know, like you hit my wife in the face with a live round. Just make sure you knock her out. This is such a moment. Like when you realize he how hard he hit when they show the replay and you realize how hard he hit her. I. I, I mean, they both sell this. Everybody sells this incredibly. Like, Rebecca is out. Sean is furious, but he doesn't go after Jericho because he's so worried about Rebecca. And Jericho is horrified at what he's done. Jericho's best acting performance of his career is in this moment right here. And I'm sure part of that. I don't know if he's acting. Yeah, yeah I think part he of it is he's he like, oh, no, I just punched Shawn Michaels' wife in the fucking face. Oh, no. But even if he's not, as his character realizing that he's crossed that line like you can't come back from this everything else that you've done has just been in the quotes of a normal wrestling storyline right you're feuding whatever this like Shawn michaels is never going to stop coming for you now he hit a like he hit a woman he hit a man's wife and like not a woman wrestler like just a woman like a man's wife one of the boy's wives like it's a line you don't cross this is the perfect illustration of the difference between intergender wrestling and this kind of thing is when Kofi Kingston hit Beth Phoenix, you didn't react like this because she's a fucking wrestler and she's a yeah, credible I athlete. Mean, hit her with a wrestling move, not yeah. just a clean punch to the face. So whenever anybody talks about intergender wrestling, this is what they're thinking of. But this is a totally different fucking thing. This is just a normal stranger. I would feel like you would feel similarly if somebody just went into the crowd and decked some random dude who's not a wrestler. Like you can't yeah. just bring civilians into it like that um but he destroys her 
So Jericho goes to the back. Eventually, some referees come out, and them and Sean, you know, help Rebecca to the back. Um, just did an amazing angle here. Like yeah, everybody it, it, did their jobs perfectly here. Other than the fact that Jericho screwed up his punch and hit her for real, but you know that just made it more dramatic. Yeah, the looks on Tr- Shawn Michaels and Tr- uh, Chris Jericho's faces haunt me. Yeah. Like the look of like concern and like boiling anger, but he can't leave his wife to go do anything about it. And he can't fight because he's still not cleared by the doctors. Like he's, yeah. he's, well, he's paralyzed. And he's just like, I'm, he's just telling me, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I should never have brought you out here. And then the look in Jericho's eyes, because he realizes that now he's a villain. Like he yeah. can't convince himself now that he's not the villain. He has to embrace it. And that can't moment where from this. just like the light of all of your burning bridges, right? Like, and- like everybody's real feelings are the same as the storyline. Like yes. Sean is actually pissed at Jericho and upset with himself that he agreed to put his wife in this situation. Rebecca is actually not silly and yeah. Jericho is actually horrified with himself at what he did. Yeah. Like it's obviously if Rebecca hadn't turned out to be okay, this would be a very different no. situation. No. Luckily, I mean, she wakes up like, 10 minutes later she's totally fine everything's fine jericho and Shawn michaels aren't pissed at each other they're totally yeah. good there's some tension backstage but Re- rebecca diffuses it by like asking jericho if that was really as hard as he could hit which yeah less hard on her because otherwise him and yeah sean and jericho were probably gonna throw down right mm-hmm. here and thank god that that does get diffused because this they could have killed the storyline right here yeah but like they will go on to have one of the greatest matches in wrestling history as a result of this the next night on Raw, Jericho, like a true heel, blames Sean yes. for bringing his wife to the ring and using her as a human shield. Love that promo. Like, I that's just, what that's what a heel does. I just love the idea that, like, as he's walking out after doing it, he realizes, like, oh, no, I went too far. Oh, no, I oh, know. And clearly over the course of the night, he recontextualizes it in his mind so that yes. he's the hero and Sean's the villain. That's Sean a great Michaels villain. never should have brought his wife to... He knows what happens when you step in the ring. He knows what can happen. And he put his wife in that situation. What was he thinking? The same selfish man he's always been. Every great villain believes that they're the yeah. hero and they have to. And that's why this works. I love this story. I will argue that this is by far the best Jericho there ever was. And, like, literally, it's going to be yeah. dead by November. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay, next up for the ECW title, we've got Mark Henry uh, defending against Matt Hardy. Uh, this one lasts 30 seconds. Hardy immediately hits a twist of fate. And then Tony Atlas pulls Hardy out of the ring to make the save. And Henry is disqualified. And then Atlas and Henry beat up on Matt until Jeff shows up to make the stay- save. And the Hardys stand tall together. I mean, there's nothing to that. And this is what we referenced earlier, that it's insane that they literally made Matt Stryker and Todd Grisham sit out there all night when they were literally just doing this match for 30 seconds. I don't understand why they can't go back after the match is over. I don't understand why you can't just have Jim Ross and Taz call every show, every match on the show. Like, the, the couple of times, and I think this moment they happened at uh, Royal Rumbles, where they just have, like, they combine yeah. the announcers for me, one announcer for each show. Just do that. It just makes so much more sense. Yeah, that would than, work. Like, actually pay the money to send these guys to the show for nothing. Um, then we see Punch Punk stretching backstage. They roll the package for his match against JBL. 
And we've got CM Punk defending the world heavyweight title against JBL. Obviously, you know, hard drinking, you know, meat eating JBL doesn't like Punk's whole straight edge deal. He offered to forfeit the match to Punk if Punk would have a drink and Punk refused. I've always loved this. Like JBL pours a shot of Jack Daniels and it's like, if you'll drink this, I'll forfeit the match right now and you can keep your precious title. Because JBL's just Satan. He's yeah. just capitalist Satan. <laughs> Make everybody give in to their vices. Um, it's a, this is a good choice for Punk. Like, JBL is a big enough name, and with his promos, he can create enough heat to put Punk over and then do the job, and it's fine. Yeah, that, that's a good choice. This is one of the only yeah, good moments of this title run is that he gets to beat JBL here. Also, uh, he can, been, yeah, good. Oh, I mean, he gets a nice pop here, and I was just—I always have to point out for all punks complaining about not being pushed enough. Like he debuted in the summer of 2006, and here two years later, he's the world champion on Raw. He's literally a triple crown champion before the end of this year, and it's like, well, <laughs> like the entire time he was in this company, like he had a belt or was in the title hunt. Like, it just yeah, like I don't think he has very much to complain about. I mean, obviously, like, he wanted to be a top guy, which is not something that they really wanted him to be. So I understand it from that point of view. But, like, saying that he was never pushed, like, shut up. (laughs) Dude, shut the fuck up. You can clearly hear Vince's voice when Cole starts talking about how Punk is, like, a weirdo who likes video games and comic books and drinking soda rather than beer. I feel like that describes a good chunk of WWE's fan base, but it's... A alien idea to Vince McMahon. It's just, I understand that punk is not his cup of tea. And it's his company. He could just not push him if that's what he wanted to do. But the idea of, like, disparaging him openly, who is that for? It's the same thing they did to Daniel Bryan. Yeah. Like, in what way do you feel like that's helping him get over? Or if you don't want him to get over, don't put him on television. It's your fucking company. Yeah. Why be well, petty like this? They know they can tell. They, I mean, they can't deny the crowd has responded to him. It's one of those situations where, like, he really wants. And maybe he just wants CM Punk to get over as, like, this Cinderella story before he goes back to the mid card. But, like, that's not what the fans want. And that's not what's going to happen. But that's just what Vince has talked himself into. Uh, they go back and forth for a while until JBL hits a big fallaway slam off the top rope, and then he proceeds to punk, soften up Punk's back and his ribs. Punk finally gets some offense in with a knee in the corner and then a bulldog. He tries for the G- GTS, but he can't get JBL up. Uh, JBL follows up with a short-arm clothesline, and then Punk springboards into the ring for a clothesline, but JBL catches him with a power slam. Um then there's a weird spot where Punk hits like a leg lariat. JBL goes down and the back of his head hits the back of Punk's head and Punk's head gets split open here. It's brutal. Yeah, this looks like it hurt a lot. I. <laughs> it's just a bizarre spot. It's nobody's fault. Like, What were the odds that they were going to both fall that way? There's a camera shot later in this match where they show, like, and you can see, like, a, lo- a bloody lump 
Yes. And it's gross. Blood is just dripping out of the back of Punk's head. It's the only blood on the, I guess, actually, actually, Rebecca, actually, there is a little more blood on this show because Rebecca's lip got split open when Jericho punched her. And I think Undertaker gets his arm nicked by the cell wall later on. But there's no blading on this show because they've banned blading at this point. Yeah, there's just a shit ton of accidental blood. That's better, right? Not long before uh, Batista blades in that match against Jericho and Vince finds him like $600,000. And like famously, Batista was like, whatever, I'll pay the whole thing. (laughs) Straight cash. Um, The thing is... I, I heard Batista recently talk about the fact that he was completely broke, like before he got Guardians of the Galaxy. Like he hadn't worked in years; he was out of money. So having to that six hundred thousand dollars he got fined would have been helpful. Could have lived off that for a while. Batista's story. At some point, I almost feel like I I want to produce like a documentary about Batista's fucking life because it yeah. rules on so many levels. But yeah, he was never afraid to be like, oh, here's here's a million dollars, whatever, who gives a shit. No plan for the future, but he's Batista, so he just keeps getting awesome opportunities because he rules. Yeah. Um, uh, when Punk follows up with a knee, he tries for the Bulldog, but JBL sets him up on the top rope and hits a back superplex. Uh, Punk pops up and hits the GTS for the pin. It was a good good match here. Like I thought JBL played his heel role really well, and this was a good win for Punk. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this. They don't really have any long-term plans for Punk, so like this is fine. Literally like two months from now, he's going to be right back in the mid-card as if this never happened. So like that's fine. But yeah, this was, as far as trying to put him over, they did everything they could of this match. Uh, we see the great Kali warming up backstage, and then they roll the promo for Kali versus Triple H. There's not much of a storyline here. They just need somebody to challenge Triple H, and Kali is one of the only heels on SmackDown at this point. God. <laughs> pretty dire. I mean, yeah, this is we're pretty far into the great Kali here. Like, he's been beat by Undertaker, Cena beat him. Like, there's not a lot of gas left in the tank at this point. No, there's really not. This is probably the last significant match he ever has. Yeah. Uh, the height difference is staggering here. Like Triple H is a tall man. Triple yeah. H is six four, those, six five, something like in that. In boots, I would say probably at least six three to six four in boots, I'd say. Yeah. Kali looks a foot taller. I mean Kali probably has some lift in his shoes too. But Great Kali is insanely tall. Like Great Kali is what every other giant in wrestling history has been proposed to have been, yes. which is so funny because like he, like he literally could have in a different era, absolutely been a protected thing that you keep on the roster and draws forever. Unfortunately, Great Kali sucks ass, and we just know that that's true. That's okay, and I'm sure even he would on some level admit that he sucks. That's fine, but like he is real big like real big it's insane how tall he is um triple h immediately goes for the pedigree but kali blocks it kali hits the tree slam but he doesn't cover um they go to the floor kali hits triple h with a chop to the head they go back to the ring kali is beating him up uh he covers triple h with his foot but triple h kicks out and he puts him in a nerve hold Triple H fights out of the nerve hold, hits a face buster. Kali falls back and gets stuck in the ropes in the old Andre the Giant spot. 
I always love that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I just there's just something hilarious about like how this only happens to giants. Yeah, they're just so heavy that like the ropes twang on them every time they try to run the ropes. I think you could do this with the modern ropes that are so much tighter. Like, well, see, you, I wondered that too. Yeah. Yeah, like when you watch the old, like when you watch the WWE from the '80s, the ropes are super loose because nobody's springboarding off of them. Like as we get into the era of cruiserweights, they super tighten up the ropes because they need tension so guys can jump off of them. But like, yeah, so I didn't know you could still do this spot at this point. I mean, I guess it's the pos- all you're really doing is putting your arms around the back of the ropes and then just like picking up the bottom rope and threading it through. I guess it's so possible. The amount of strength you have to have to perform that now that they're so yeah. tight is a lot more than it was before. But Kali is like one of uh, one of those unthinkably strong people. Oh my god! Yeah, like you wouldn't even really think about it. But like, look at his fucking muscles and realize that he's on on the frame that that's on. Yeah, it's insane how jacked he is. Like, the man the is just a, a power bomb. Physical marvel. Yeah. Uh, Triple H charges him, but Kali just boots him right in the face. That was a great spot. Love that. Uh, Triple H wraps Kali's leg along, along the ring post, but Kali gets him with another chop, puts him in the vice grip. Triple H fights out of the vice grip, hits the pedigree, and gets the pin. This was a shockingly good match. There are two, there are three decent great Kali matches. Yeah. One of them is with Cena. One of them was with Batista in Punjabi prison, which only we appreciate. <laughs> and then one of them is this one. And it, in all three cases, it was a case of a top guy being like, oh, I got to carry this lump of shit. Let me show you how I carry this lump of shit. And just put, producing a good match. This is a period where Triple H has been so lazy in the ring for so many years. Yeah. Like, the DX period is some of the laziest shit. Jesus Christ, he, like, he's awful. up, and he's, like, sympathy weight getting, because Stephanie's pregnant, like, 50 times during this period, and, like, he just half-assing it, doesn't give a fuck. Sean takes all the bumps. Here, he's, like, gotten back into shape. Yeah, he's, he's awesome here. He's ass. He's trying to put people over. Like, this is... Yeah. He probably feels like this is his last shot at a run of great matches. I have such fond memories of this time when he was on SmackDown. It was just so fresh. He, he had so many good TV matches. And, like, every week he was putting on a great TV match, it seemed like. Absolutely. Like, he goes into, like, the Elimination Chamber with a bunch of, like, SmackDown jabronis. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, this is so well, let cool. Me put, let me put them all over. Yeah, let me put every person on SmackDown. Oh, everyone can give me their finish and almost beat me. Yeah, and that's the like it's not like he does all the, that many jobs, but he's st- like even as he's beating guys, he's making them look really good in the process, which is kind of the opposite of what he had done before this where he just beat everybody and made them look like shit. Yeah, this is sort of like the Chris Jericho way where he feuded with Jericho and like almost let Jericho beat him and that put Jericho over. Like Triple H is extremely good at that. He just spent a lot of years of his career not really being able to do it. <laughs> not really giving a shit. Yeah. yeah. But, like, the whole evolution time he would do stuff like this, he's very good at building contenders for himself. Because all he's ever wanted to be is Ric Flair, who was the best ever at that. Uh, then they do the promo for Batista versus Cena. It's a good package focusing on you know, all the parallels to their rises. Um, it's match time. Cena comes out first. He gets a mixed reaction. Batista comes out to cheers. Um 
Batista goes for the Batista bomb early, but Cena slips out. Batista follows with a clothesline and then a jackhammer. Why? I kind of wish Batista had made the jackhammer a regular part of his arsenal. Why on earth didn't he? Like, when he started incorporating, like, the spear and stuff, I was like, yeah, just take all the Goldberg shit. He did the boss man slam, too. I love... Batista's the rings not... of Saturn, you remember the Batista yeah. fight? Batista's not given enough credit for, like, all the stuff he added to his act over the years. Yeah. Like, he usually, he literally, when he came in, was like a spine buster and a powerbomb, and that's all he knew how to do. He added all sorts of wacky shit over the years. Uh, Cena comes back with a fisherman suplex. Batista comes back with a side slam. Cena gets Batista up for the FU, but Batista slips out and he chops Batista's leg. He then does a knee breaker in the figure four. This is the only time I remember him using the figure four. But like, since Flair just retired, what a great idea that fucking is. Uh, Cena manages to turn it over and get out. He gets Batista up for the FU and dumps him over the top to the floor. They're both down as Cena tries to get the feeling back in his leg. Um, Cena hits a blue thunder bomb and the five knuckle shuffle. He gets Batista up for the FU again, but Batista gets out. There's a big boot from Batista and they're both down. Up until just about this point, this match has been very good. Like I enjoy the shit out of it. It's going to go sideways towards the end. But I just want to make it known that if they had put this exact match up on WrestleMania, it would have probably been awesome. <laughs> the fans are way into this. Uh, Batista hits the spine buster. He shakes the ropes. He sets up for the Batista bomb, but Cena double legs him and gets him in the STFU. Batista's able to fight to the ropes. Cena goes for the FU again. Batista slips out, gets Cena in a choke. Batista lets him out, hits the spear. Cena just barely kicks out. But then Cena pops up, hits the FU. He's slow to cover, and Batista kicks out. Uh, They fight on the top rope. Cena knocks Batista off. He tries for that leg drop move that he does from the top rope, but Batista catches him out of the air with a Batista bomb. What an awesome spot that is. That should have just been the finish, honestly. It's insane that Cena kicked out here. Um, Somehow Cena kicks out. Batista stalls a little bit and then hits him with another Batista bomb, and that's the finish. Um, I think Cena injured his neck on the Batista bomb, the first one. He ends up uh, going on the shelf with neck surgery after this. Like, I'm sure it's one of those where he had had been having neck issues for a little while. And that was just, you know, kind of what exacerbated it. But I think he came down wrong on that Batista bomb and hurt his neck. My speculation has always been that they had like, at least like a couple more minutes of match left to do. Probably. It was only 13 minutes long, which feels a little short. And that's why they ended with the Batista bomb. He's like, yo, I need to get out. We need to get out of here. (laughs) Like I'm fucked. Um, Seems like they were foreshadowing a Batista heel turn here, but you know, Cena gets hurt, and then Batista gets hurt, and by the time he comes back, you know, there's no point to it. We eventually get Hollywood Batista, and it's one of our favorite things. Yeah, if you think about it, like, Hollywood Batista being, like, the literal sequel to this match makes total sense. It just happens a couple years later, but that it seems like it's pretty clear that that's what they were going to go for after this. 
Yeah, I think they were going to do the rematch at WrestleMania. Yeah. They're going to eventually, eventually Batista can turn heel. Like even though he beats Cena, Cena's still the bigger star, and he gets jealous of him. God. Maybe Batista has the belt by then, and Cena wins the Royal Rumble, and then you have a hell of a WrestleMania main event. Yeah. Uh, they lower the cell and roll the promo for the main event. It's The Undertaker versus Edge in the Hell in a Cell match. Edge is out first. He looks totally deranged. I love this character and wish they'd stuck with this longer. Oh, my God. Like, they could have so easily just made this a, oh, my God, I'm so scared of the Hell in a Cell. Making this like he has literally worked himself into yes. a frenzy because it's the only way he can survive yeah, is amazing. He's insane. He's like a rabid dog. And like just the idea that that character has that place to go to. Yeah. And maybe he's like a little afraid of it. And maybe that's why he does the chicken shit stuff as much as he does. But he just has that level. And every yeah. major feud he ever had, he goes to that. Like the every the feud he had with Cena, he works himself into that. Like the feud he had with Foley. Like at some point, like he just loses it. And I love that he's so careful. He's the ultimate opportunist, but eventually this part of him comes out. Um Taker makes his iconic entrance, and I always love his Hell in a Cell matches where he gets to slam the door shut. This one especially, like, even though they have, like, they've loaded it up so Edge can seem credible in this match. And I'm glad. But what this match is. You're is, so fucked. It, it is Edge's demise. Like, we are here. They have spent a year building Edge. And, like, he's gotten away with it and gotten away with it and gotten away with it. And now it's time for him to die. He's just been tormenting Undertaker. He's stolen the world title from him so many times. And now Taker is going to kill him. There is nowhere to run. Oh, it's so good. Did it surprise you when this match started and there were still like 45 minutes left in the show? No, I remembered this match was insanely long. Like, I, I knew it was long, but I was like, fuck me. That's, oh boy. This this match is insane. We're going to talk about all the things that happen here, but this, I cannot believe they let them do this many spots. I can't either. Like, it almost, like, ruins the idea of Hell in a Cell after this, because I feel like they do just about everything you can do. Yeah. Uh, Taker beats up Edge, runs him into the cage wall, runs him into the steps. He puts the steps in the corner and drops Edge face first onto them, but apparently Edge blocked it, and he throws Taker into the steps then spears him into the steps, and then hits him in the head with them. He stacks tables up on the floor and tries to suplex Undertaker through them, but Taker blocks it. Instead, Edge gets a ring under the chair from under the ring and hits Taker with it. Like, Edge proceeds to just beat the Undertaker's ass for about 10 minutes here. Which is incredible. That is not how I thought this match was going to go. Like, I assumed it would just be Edge running the whole time. No, Edge is here to murder the Undertaker. That was surprising. Edge goes onto the ring and gets a ladder, sets it up in the ring, lays Taker on a table, gets a chair, and uses the chair to do like an elbow drop through the table on Undertaker. Jesus Christ. And it's the one that he teased when he did it to Mick Foley on SmackDown. I was like, fuck, man, he's murdering Taker. Edge goes for the concerto, but Taker sits up. He hits Edge with a big right hand, and they're both down. Uh, They go out to the floor where Edge launches himself off the steps to spear Undertaker 
into the wall of the cage and the cage wall collapses. How excited were you when like the cage wall collapsed? Oh, so early because I thought Edge was going off. I thought I thought they yes. were going to go up top and Edge was going off the top. Like I had never, not since like it, they had made it clear we're not coming off the top anymore. That was a Mick Foley thing. And this but, this cell is even taller than the one Foley went off. Yeah, but it kind of felt like the way the storyline yeah. had set up that if they were ever going to do it, it was this. Thank I mean, God they don't. It's Holy not like shit. I mean it's not like Edge is a stranger to doing crazy shit like but usually he's the one doing it to other guys he's not usually yeah. the one who takes the atrocious bump like Edge's neck could not have held up to this no. thank Christ they don't idea. do it uh, they fight out by the announce tables Edge hits Taker in the head with one of the monitors and then spears him through the announce table very cool. <laughs> Jesus. Again, like, we're only, like, halfway through this match. Like, they're dropping bombs on each other. Like, I don't know that... I can't remember the last time we had seen a match with, like, this much in it. This feels like... Honestly, this would have been made more sense if it was, like, the Cena-Batista match. Then, like, then it'd be... I love it because it's a great match. It does seem like a little bit of a weird fit for the Edge is going to die kind of story. But it's just so fucking good, I don't even want to question it. Uh, They make their feet. They exchange blows. Taker gets the better of it. Uh, They go back to the ring where Edge hits Taker with a ladder. Edge gets a camera and hits Undertaker with it. Taker kicks out. Edge sets up for a spear, but Taker catches him with a choke slam. Edge beats Undertaker to his feet and hits the execution DDT. Uh... Taker recovers. He tries for the last ride, but Edge slips out and spears him. Taker just kind of recovers and hits the leg. There's a lot of just getting back up after finishers here. Taker recovers and hits the last ride. Yeah, that one was kind of, I mean, I know it's Taker doing it, but still. You're allowed to sell, especially after all this stuff has happened to you. Right. Taker tries for a tombstone on the steps. Edge slips out and hits uh, the Edge-O-Matic onto the steps. Taker tries to use old school, but Edge crotches him. Or no, it's Edge tries to do old school on Taker. Taker crotches him and then choke slams him off the top rope through the two tables on the floor. Yeah, you know, just a, a transition spot. My God. Like, none of these things have been the finish. Any one of these things could have finished the match. There are at least like seven different finishers done in this match that could have easily won any match on this show. Back in the ring, Undertaker spears Edge. He hits him with a TV camera, hits him with the concerto. He's like going through all the things Edge did to him. Yes, I loved that. That's really cool. Such a good touch. And then he finishes Edge off with the tombstone and gets the pin. They put each other through hell, but, like, The Undertaker has come out the other side. He's a definitive winner here. But honestly, like, don't you feel like it kind of put Edge over that Taker had to go through all of this to beat him? Like, Yes, if you actually saw the match. If you didn't, I feel like the only thing that broke through was what happened after the match. Agreed. I think you're right about that. Um, after the match, Taker goes to leave, gets 
all the way up the ramp before he turns around and come back comes back to the ring. This next part takes like 10 minutes because they have to, you know, I don't know the magic involved here, but they have to like remove one of the boards from under the ring so Edge can go through it or whatever, however this works. Put whatever padding underneath they need yeah. to. This takes forever. I mean, it's a great idea, and it's very cool, but yeah, the, the amount of stalling involved almost makes it not worth it to me. Uh, since we're proposing ways ways Edge could have died, couldn't Undertaker have chokeslammed him through the cell and had him go down, go through the ring onto a crash pad? Well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, is that, like, you could have... Is it, it, it been, really that different than going off a ladder? It would have been a much better way to kill time, like, dragging yes. Edge up the cell. Maybe Edge flees and Taker chases yeah. him up there. because it could have just been during the match when they went outside, Edge could have... They could have fought for a while, then Edge climbs up the cage to try to get away from him, and Taker follows him up, and then he choke slams him through. I mean, it, that's a really long drop, but yeah. if you're doing it right, like he's going to crash through the ring, and then you've got a crash pad underneath. Absolutely, and like that's a more literal sending him to hell kind of deal. On the other hand, they have not done a spot anything like that in a while. <laughs> It's a lot, especially for a guy with a neck injury. Yeah, even like Jeff Hardy hasn't done spots like that in a good long time. Um, okay, so Undertaker brings the ladder into the ring. He like gets Edge up like almost for the last ride and dump puts him on top of the ladder and Edge like lays on top of the ladder. Taker goes out, gets another ladder, climbs it, goozles Edge, talks to him for a while. A bunch of like effects play on the screen, like the screen gets all distorted. And then he choke slams Edge off the ladder through the ring and flames shoot up out of the hole in the ring, and we're, and we're finally done. What an insane match. Yeah, I, I like that as the conclusion to this, and it's certainly the thing from the show that gets replayed the most. I do still feel like, to some extent, it's kind of like a long walk for a, like a, a small drink of water. Like, yeah, I get that we're being literal about him sending him to hell, but like he also metaphorically very much sent him to hell already. It's okay. <laughs> But still, this match kicks fucking ass. Like, if we're talking about the greatest SummerSlam main events of all time, this has got to be, like, top five at worst. It's definitely up there. I, it's hard to beat uh, the Brett Davy boy match from Wembley. Yeah, and Brock and Rock is certainly well up there. I'm trying to think. Of, there, There's, like, a top five, and then there's, like, 25 shit-ass stinkers. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so that's a wrap on this show. I mean, I thought it was a good show overall. I didn't I had have any big complaints time. here. Like, not, not to put time to food, find a point on it, because I know I bring this up every time we cover a SummerSlam, but, like, literally SummerSlam is the worst thing that exists in the wrestling universe. SummerSlams were invented as a personal punishment to me. <laughs> the idea of, like, fully and completely enjoying a SummerSlam from start to finish like I did here, rare. Had a great time. It was fun. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> nothing much. What a fun time this was, and I'd say it continues for the next couple months because, like, Unforgiven is a really good pay per view with the scramble matches and the. Jericho Michaels street fight and Jericho winning the title and Punk having to be stripped of it. All that is really fun. And then No Mercy, you get the awesome uh, Chris Jericho, Shawn Michaels ladder match. And I can scramble matches, which are so fun. Yeah, I can pinpoint where this all comes to a screeching halt, which is Survivor Series, where they have Cena beat Jericho for the belt. Yes. Kills I remember in my brain as one of the worst matches in wrestling history, but I honestly think that's just because it was such a disappointment. Yeah. So excited for this Jericho run, enjoying it so much, like hoping he keeps the belt for a while. And then they just job him out to Cena and Cena's return match. It's like the worst example of super Cena that you can think of that just like, Oh yeah, well here he is to immediately win again automatically. (laughs) Not the yeah. first or last time we've said that something seemed hopeful and then they immediately ruined it. That's basically the story of this podcast of things we liked before they ruined them. <laughs> so much hope until there was not. Until there was not. And next week we're going to be talking about something else like that. <laughs> yeah, we've got another time that was really exciting until it came to a screeching halt. Uh, kind of similar to this show. It's SummerSlam 2016, which is... Um, you know, when they were they brought back the split rosters and SmackDown had moved to USA and it just felt like a time of infinite possibility with the women's revolution, with all these guys being called up from NXT, with you know, guys coming in from other companies like AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura and Samoa Joe. Like this company felt like it was on the brink of taking off, and then it didn't. And then it didn't. <laughs> Everything individually goes wrong for each one of these guys. Ah, these poor bastards. They have they have no idea what's coming. Yeah. We're going to have so many things to talk about next week. Um, we've got the summer of Brock, where he went back to UFC and kick, kicked Mark Hunt's ass. Yeah, he did. And then got busted for a post-fight steroids test. We've got them creating Finn Balor as like yeah. the new the new leader of the new Raw generation, only for him to immediately get hurt and ruin his push forever. Yeah, uh, they were building the team around Finn at this point. And oh then yeah, Seth Rollins injured him with that fucking power bomb, the one that he almost ended Sting's career with, and yet they just kept letting him do it. Um. We've got Dean Ambrose as the WWE champion in a surprisingly good feud with Dolph Ziggler. Yeah, the summer of Dolph Ziggler, the last relevant summer of his career. Yeah. Um, We've got The Miz and his never-ending Intercontinental title run. This is peak Miz right here. I wish it had never ended, if I'm being totally honest. He should still be the Intercontinental champion today. He should have just held that belt for 10 fucking years, done a San Martino. Who cares? Uh, John Cena versus AJ Styles in the match that makes AJ a superstar. Yes. Oh, my God. Who? The match of the two biggest stars for the two biggest promotions in America, not that TNA was particularly close, <laughs> yeah. where it turns out that the TNA guy was better. Holy yeah. shit. Um, all that and plenty more next time on The Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.